The following story has been brought to you by storiestoinspire.org. When Hamas, the Machshemam Vezichram, attacked in the pogrom and the war of Simchas Torah, Tavshem Pedal, at Shabbos morning, 6, uh, 6 o'clock or 6.30 a.m., the southern communities, this was an attack that was planned for a year or maybe two years, as I heard from some uh, Israeli experts apparently with the imprints of Iran, because it was a brilliant, brilliant attack, strategically designed and orchestrated in such an intricate and extraordinary way to the point that it allowed the first level of the defense forces to be paralyzed for quite a significant amount of hours. And those hours, you know, there's an expression in Hashinas, right? Hashina l'shalashais. Those few hours were critical because it's when the massacres and the kidnapping and the brutality took place, the early hours of Shemini Atzeres and Simchas Torah. The first level of the defense line between Gaza and Israel was broken, and it was broken through many different, very, very brilliant methods that they achieved to be able to paralyze and silence that first response. In their plan, until you mobilize an army, you know, the regular army, which is comprised of soldiers in other places of the country, and of course reservists, that takes time. What they didn't know is about the second army in between the first and the third. Eli Beer told me in the session that they wanted to go to Yerushalayim. They were planning to go to Yerushalayim. And what happened was, after a few hours, when people started to realize from all over the country, especially closer to the south, regular citizens who have been trained or in training went and sacrificed their lives to save whoever they could save. And of course, they saved hundreds. And they killed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of terrorists. It took so much time for people to be able to realize what's happening. And every day you hear literally dozens of stories of individual people, regular individuals who, who went into the line of fire and literally saved soul after soul after soul in impossible and horrific conditions because you're talking about an army of around 1,000 or 1,500 terrorists that were prepared with maps and strategy and everybody knew where to go and everybody had a different position and completely unexpected, you know, Israel was caught completely off guard tragically. And, uh, you know, you may have saw the story about that woman in Ofakim, Rachel Edri. She was held up with her husband for close to 20 hours. Now, why didn't they just come in and shoot her like they did to so many others? Rachel Edri didn't have a gun to shoot back. What she had was a weapon that actually helped her, cookies. It's just an incredible story, I mean, about her state of mind and her, her, her warmth. As she, I saw one of the interviews with her, she said, I knew that hungry men are much more dangerous than well-fed men, which I thought many of you can appreciate. So they come in, five people, five people, five Hamas terrorists. She offers them cookies and makes a coffee, and they're enjoying her hospitality. And one of them wants Coca-Cola. She doesn't have classic Coca-Cola. She has some new version of Coca-Cola. And they start screaming at her, we want Coca-Cola. And she's laughing now. She's like, of course, let me go get Coca-Cola. She bandages one of them. She says, I'll teach you, teach me Arabic. So now they're teaching her Arabic. I'll teach you Hebrew. And she knows her objective is one thing. Her objective is to buy time until hopefully security forces, the IDF could come in and save her. It happens to be that two of her sons are policemen. And they're involved in the rescue, and they rescue both of their parents. You know, you read this, her, her fortitude, her, 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 she said, 
My house, I give hospitality. <laughs> just, uh, just an extraordinary, and stories after stories of people who in the hardest and hardest of conditions literally rose out of the abyss, out of such horrors, to be able to perform miracles and save every soul that was saved, despite the horrible, horrible casualties and brutality and those that were kidnapped. Um, uh, somebody shared with me about a cousin of theirs. His name is Dekel Suisa, 23-year-old boy, a platoon commander. And when Hamas began the attack 6.30 a.m. on Shabbos, so Dekel had his whole unit in the army base hide in the bomb shelter, and he said, I'm going to go take them on. He didn't know what he's taking on. And he went out, and he single-handedly killed 60, 60 terrorists. 60 terrorists this man killed while protecting his entire platoon. They were in a bomb shelter. There was one last standing terrorist at the end, and he shot and killed Bekel. At the end, and I saw one of the, one of the, one of his soldiers in his platoon said, you know, he fought for us until his last drop of blood and saved our lives. He didn't want to allow us to even touch danger. I saw a story of a 53 year old man. His name is Aaron Tsarif. Lives in the kibbutz Magen. And he woke up some chastair in the morning, you know, six in the morning. And he goes out of the house just to survey the environment. You know, a regular Shabbos morning, he knows it's close to God. He wants to survey the environment. He's standing alone on an elevated mound in this kibbutz, kibbutz Magen. And uh, suddenly he sees the Hamas monsters arriving. 600 feet away, he sees 10 motorcycles, three pickup trucks. They all came in with motorcycles and pickup trucks filled with people screaming in Arabic. It wasn't hard for him to understand what's happening. They approach the fence to his kibbutz. Their objective is to get in and, you know, slaughter every single person alive or kidnap them if possible. They begin to cut the fence. He's standing on the mound. He puts himself into a protective position and he begins to shoot. He's alone, alone on the mound, 6.30 or 6.20 a.m. Simchasteira. And he shoots just one after another, one by one, just shooting, shooting, shooting. They keep on falling. The next one arrives, he shoots them too. Finally, you know, people in the kibbutz here, they're shooting. So some other people come to assist him. For seven hours, this man protected his kibbutz. For seven hours, the entire community was saved. Only at 1 p.m., seven hours later, from 6 to 1, does help begin to arrive. I mean, this will be recorded as one of the greatest military and political and intelligence disasters in the history of Israel, probably the greatest one. Yeah, you have hundreds of stories coming out now of extraordinary, ordinary people who lived and died, saving countless others in a massacre that nobody could believe was happening. I saw an interview in Kikara Shabbat with a uh, with a guy named Yair, Yair Unzbacher. Yair Unzbacher works in, in a unit that trains to fight terrorists. So he's well-versed with this. And he said, Simchaster, in the morning he woke up and he was going to shul. It was around 8 o'clock, he woke up, he was going to Shul, he said he went to the mikveh, and then he decided to go to Shul, of course, for Hakafas. In Eretz Yisrael, Shemini Yatzeres and Simchas Teres together. And then he hears a siren, which is not unusual in Israel, unfortunately, because of missiles. And he said his father, who was walking with him to Shul, tells him, this is something more serious. And then he started to see different signs, and he said, I went into my house, woke up his wife and said, there's a war, I'm going to be fine, I got to go. Five minutes later, he was out of the house on the way down to the south. And he went to the kibbutzim where the massacres were happening. He mobilized others. And uh, 
it seems like he killed many, many, many terrorists. And he was describing, he said, one of the kibbutzim, he went in to a house, and there was a family or a few families who were hiding in a sheltered, in a bomb-sheltered room where many people were hiding, and if the ceiling was good, many of them were saved that way because the terrorists couldn't get in, or at least it was very hard for them to get in, so they went to other destinations. And he says the people inside didn't want to let him in because they came dressed, as you know, the terrorists came dressed, many of them in Israeli uniforms. So they didn't want to open up. And then he started to speak about Hishan Rabba and Shemini Atzeres and Simchas until he convinced them that he was one of their brothers. And he says they opened up the door and uh, they were there for hours and hours and hours, you know, families, men, women, children. And he says, what I did was, I, I just went over and I kissed, I kissed every single one. And they kissed me. And then he, he looked at the interview and he said, he said something so powerful. He said, now, wherever I go, wherever I go, I have one craving. I want to kiss every single Jew I meet. I want to kiss every single Jew I meet. And he explained something very powerful. And he said, and I realized that that's the truest sentiment of the Jewish people. You know, what often happens with us is, we live on different vibrations, you know. I can live on a vibration of guilt, of shame, of, of fear, of paralysis. These are vibrations. My emotions are flowing when I'm in a state of guilt or in a state of shame or in a state of, of fear or in a state of hate or judgmentalism. There's always a vibration, but it's a very low vibration. Love, empathy, connectedness, openness is a much higher vibration. The Jewish people, you know, we can all live on different vibrations. What happened in this time of crisis is it touched us to the core. So people respond with their core. And on a core level, really all Jews want to do when they meet another Jew is kiss them, hug them, embrace them. I'm not talking about your own brother and sister, mother, father, children, obviously. But even that Jew, he didn't know. He never met him before. The Baal Shem Tev once said, it says, Kal Yisrael, I rave him The Gemara says, all Jews are guarantors for each other. We're responsible for each other. So the Baal Shem Tev, the word I rave him in Hebrew means three things. It means Arevim is guarantor, a guarantor. Arevim also comes from the word wheat, Arev, right? Vaharevna, Viseravna, right? Harev, Machal Arev is a sweet food. And Arevim also means mixed. Like Arev, like Arev, making an Arev, Taruvas, to mix. So the Bashem Dev said, Kal Yisrael Arevim Zebes. All the Jews are mixed in with each other. They're integrated. They're one, interconnected. It's like one large soul manifested in different bodies. And therefore, call a Jew triggers sweetness in another Jew. Natural. It's like when you look at your little angelic baby of yours or, or, or your neighbor, your friend, and there's a sense of sweetness. And that therefore, Aravim also means responsible. It comes from the internal connection and sweetness. And, and this is what this war brought out. You know, in Israel, there was a lot of fighting, as you know. And it's probably something that was, uh, Ellie Beer said that everybody was so busy fighting, they couldn't be busy protecting the country from a sworn enemy that wants to just see every Jew dead and they couldn't care less what type of yarmulke you're wearing or if you're wearing a yarmulke or not. If you have Jewish blood flowing in your sinews, you have to die. We were affected at the core. So we respond on a core, and on a core level, the Jewish, authentic, organic Jewish vibrancy is one of tremendous unity. And because that's reality. Reality is that we are one. <laughs> that's reality. It's like reality is I'm one with my arm and with my head and with my heart. Reality is not that I should be amputated, chas v'shalom, and amputate my limbs and get, get into a fight between limbs and organs. That's unnatural. It's a very, very sick vibe. So 
I can go into that vibe, especially in regular, regular days. I can live in that vibe, a vibe of judgmentalism and a vibe of negativity and a vibe of animosity. What Yair Ensbacher was saying is that the organic, authentic state of the Jewish people has emerged now in a very, very powerful way. And the reason is because everybody knows exactly how you feel when you read about a child being kidnapped to Gaza, how you feel when you read about the Jews murdered or wounded, how you feel about when you hear about the event, you see how it touches you. And like, and people say, you know, I understand if it's a relative, I understand if I know somebody. It doesn't have to do with that. There's something that's deeper than anything else, and that's the state of oneness of the Jewish people, a divine people that is organically connected forever. And therefore, the relationship is very powerful, and it's the most powerful thing. And when it gets touched, when that level of frequency gets touched, when that level of vibration gets touched, it's, it's, not, it's not even a question. Yair was describing that he was coming with, his, with a group of soldiers. They went into a gas station just to fill up with gas. A few days, like this week, this, this, this week. And he said, the guy came out and said, take whatever you want from this store. <laughs> it's all yours. <laughs> he says, we didn't take anything because we didn't feel comfortable. <laughs> but you know, this is a guy, he's living, he has a gas station with his flaffle stand. I don't know what he has. He says, take everything. This whole thing is yours. That was a natural, organic, inner sense of connection that emerged. He shared something else that was very powerful. And he said the next day, he came home late, late at night after, I don't know, 15, 20 hours of, of, of fighting for every Jewish life and, and cleaning up the kibbutz from terrorists. And finally, he had to go home. He needed a few hours of sleep. And he says he woke up the next day and he couldn't daven. In the morning, you wake up and you daven. He woke up early the next day and he, could, he couldn't daven. The sights of what he saw and the pain of what he experienced. So finally, now when he was taking a few moments to meditate, he says he couldn't. He just couldn't pray. He couldn't get himself to talk to God. Like he felt, he felt so much pain and horror, and he was just overwhelmed. That's what he said on this interview, Kikar Shabbat Inzbacher. He said he needed some inspiration. So he, what he said, he opened up a book of letters from the Lubavitcher Rebbe called Igris Kaidish. He opened up. He opened up. He, see, he opens up to a page, and there's a letter. A person writes to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, I can't get myself to Davin. <laughs> I'm not in the mood. I have issues with, I have so many issues and challenge. I just can't get myself to Davin. So he started to cry on the interview, and he said, the Rebbe writes back to this person and says, there are moments that you are not a small individual anymore. There are moments you have to realize you are the Jewish people. You are the Jewish people. So Davin to Hashem, from a position that you are the Jewish people. He says, there are moments in life when I'm an individual, and it's just me to you. He says, there are moments in life when you transcend yourself as an individual person and you embody the Jewish people. Try to daven like that. And he said, that's what he decided to do. He said, I'm not you are Innsbacher now anymore. I am now the Jewish people. That's who I am. And he started to talk to God from the Jewish people because he suddenly felt that he was... The collective Jewish people. There was no individual me versus you. And now I'm working with my issues and I have my issues. But something else came out in him. And he said it was, it was an incredible prayer. It was an incredible, it gave him so much courage and, and clarity. Nobody can take away the pain. Nobody has to take away the pain. It's not even right to take away the pain. It's a very painful time. That the, the, the job is not make myself feel better and say it's vanilla ice cream. It's a very painful time for the Jewish people. 
especially mothers who have children on the front lines and fathers who have children on the front lines and families of wounded people. You know, people talk about the 1,400 who were killed. There's 3,000 who were wounded. Some of them, when we say wounded, wounded, wounded doesn't mean they got a scratch or they need Tylenol. We're talking about people that are wounded, some of them critically with, with, with effects that are very, very profound. You know, forget about 3,000 people wounded. You know how many families are affected for life. And then there's the kidnap. So there's a tremendous pain. In a time of war, one can't eliminate pain. One must have resolve, courage, confidence, clarity is the gift of the hour. Not serenity and tranquility to the point that, uh, <laughs> you know, life is just rosy. Serenity in the point that I know who I am and what I need to do at this moment. Enjoyed this story? Come again. Bring a friend. Stories to inspire.org.